This morning, congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis being the book of beginnings. And we'll begin reading at verse 18 this morning. I'd encourage all of you to have your Bibles open this morning. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, reading to the end of the chapter this morning. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here ends the reading of God's word. Again, please keep your Bibles open. Our text this morning is simply this verse, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May the Lord bless this to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to speak to you for a few moments this morning on the subject of shame. Have you experienced shame? Have you found yourself thinking thoughts like this? I sometimes feel like a fake. If people who admire me really knew me, they'd be disgusted by me. I feel inadequate. I feel inferior to the really good people in my life that I know. I feel as God must be completely displeased with me knowing who I am, knowing that she searches me inside and out. I feel I cannot measure up the people's expectations. I feel that I will never be acceptable. Never. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I'll never be acceptable. If you have felt anything like that, even remotely, you've experienced shame. All of us, to one degree or another, have experienced shame in our lives. The good news of the gospel is simply this, brothers and sisters, the Bible. The Bible is a book about shame. Did you know that? The gospel is a message that addresses our shame. That's why this morning's message is entitled, From Shame to Glory. Not simply from shame to pride, but from shame 
to glory. That, we may say, is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, three things I want to draw to your attention from this passage. First of all, shame enters our world as an alien intruder. That's how we ought to understand shame. It enters our world as an alien intruder. It was not part of God's design in terms of what he had intended for his good and beautiful creation. But then secondly, we're going to see this morning how we respond to our shame. Have you thought about the ways in which you and I have responded to our shame? And then thirdly, God, God deals with our shame. He deals redemptively with our shame. That's at the very heart of the gospel. And he transforms that shame into glory. So first of all, then, shame enters our world as an alien intruder. The Lord did not create this world as a place of shame. You have the repeated refrain throughout Genesis 1 and 2, and God made this, God made that, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. There's this soothing rhythm, isn't there, at the beginning of Genesis about God's creation, meaning when God says it is good, it means this functions as I have designed it. And why did God design these things? Ultimately, it was to bring glory to his name, and it was to bring joy to his creation, particularly to his image bearer. But then you get the interruption. Something was not good. What was not good? It was not good for the man to be alone. And so God creates the woman. Not as an afterthought, by the way. As I teach my students, one of the most important things is to understand why God creates the woman in a separate situation than when he created Adam. It wasn't an afterthought, and it wasn't, as I've sometimes heard in Bible studies, well, the Lord figured I can do much better than this, so I'll create the woman. There's a complementary relationship between husband and wife. Together, they fulfill the calling that the Lord gave to fill the earth, to subdue it. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you look in your Bible, you'll see how when the Lord presents the man to the woman, and she's simply known as the woman, Isha in the Hebrew. She's not even given a name yet. She's simply known as the woman, meaning from man. How does Adam respond? You'll see in our Bibles that it's indented in verse 23. I would suggest to you this morning that what Adam did when he saw the woman is he sang. He was overjoyed with what God had presented to him. Now, I've suggested over the years as a pastor that that pattern ought to be practiced in our own weddings. You have the Lord presenting the woman to the man. He will exercise his headship over the wife. But you notice his response is to sing. And I've encouraged grooms at weddings. How many of you grooms, when you got married, did you sing to your bride at your wedding ceremony? Have you ever seen that? It's a beautiful thing. But usually the response I get is, that's not going to happen. But he sings. He's so overjoyed. He's so filled with a sense of, now at last, bone of my bone, 
flesh of my flesh. But then you have the statement again, not only of their union, but in verse 25. Does it strike you as odd, as strange? You ever scratch your head and say, why is this verse in the Bible? They were both naked and they were not ashamed. That may seem odd to you. But it's meant to convey the fact that before the fall into sin, there was complete openness. Nothing to hide. Nothing to shield off. Nothing to run away from between the man and the woman and between them and God. There was perfect openness, perfect communication. But then the fall into sin, it introduces shame into our world. Adam and Eve fall into sin and they experience shame. They try to cover themselves. They try to hide. They make excuses for what they've done. Things are turned upside down. And we ought to, for a moment this morning, think about what shame really is. Is shame the same thing as guilt in the Bible? I would suggest to you on the basis of Scripture that shame and guilt, though they are closely related, we could say they're cousins, They're not identical. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand before a judge and your guilt or your innocence are declared. That's what guilt is about. You have transgressed the law. You have broken the commandment. Therefore, you will face the consequence because you are guilty. The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. Shame, however, slightly different, lives within the community. Although it may feel as if it's in a courtroom. Shame is the experience we have where we believe that others look down upon us. We feel insecure, inferior, inadequate feeling unacceptable before God and unacceptable before others. Shame can occur and often does because of things that we do that are sinful, as with Adam and with Eve. But did you also know that shame can occur when we have not done something wrong? It is a judgment we impose upon ourselves because we feel as though we are not worthy of something. We feel the world is condemning us. The world is looking down upon us. And if you as a congregation are like any congregation I have served, and the people I have known over the years, 30 years of pastoral ministry, there must be some among us this morning who experience that on a regular basis. The deep pain of shame. Let me explore this a little bit further. When you think of shame, think of the various kinds of shame. There can be shame from things that we have done. And even that can be distinguished in terms of the difference between giving in to a momentary weakness. You think of the times when, in a moment of weakness, you simply capitulated. You've simply given in to sin. 
and you instantly regret it and you instantly sense that shame. I did something wrong. I gave in. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. But there's also the kind of shame that occurs when a long-standing sin that's been concealed, hidden, is finally exposed to the light of day. As a pastor, I've witnessed, I've experienced that myself. Sometimes with horror and shock that somebody who was highly esteemed, for example, in the community, a leader in the church, someone of great spiritual gifts, was engaged in sinful activity for many years and nobody knew about it except for the Lord. And now it's exposed. And now there is shame. Sometimes shame happens to us because of the trauma that's inflicted upon us. Abuse in one form or another, whether it's physical or verbal, emotional, sexual. Shame can happen because of association with others who have fallen into disgrace. We may not have done anything, but the very fact that we were associated with the person who fell into disgrace causes us profound shame. Let me give you an example of that. I don't know how many of you have read the uh, series of uh, volumes on the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson, our president, former president, by Robert Caro. I've read those, and I find the most interesting and the most telling volume is the first volume, which deals with his childhood and his growth to young adulthood. Lyndon Baines Johnson was part of a family where his father was highly esteemed as a political leader and as a businessman in the community. People looked up to him. People counted on him for favors. People knew that he would get things done in the south-central little town that they lived in. But then through a series of unfortunate events, his father lost everything, became bankrupt. So much so that when Lyndon's mother would send him to the store, the general store, to get food for dinner, the store owner eventually said, son, I can't sell you anything until your father pays his bill. He has not paid his bill. The Johnson family became a pariah in the community. They were the laughingstock. They were disgraced. And that left its scar upon him for the rest of his life. He would not do anything from that point on that might cause him embarrassment. Even when he chose in 1960 not to run for president, he was the most likely candidate in his party. But he chose not to, he said, because he was afraid that if he lost the election to Richard Nixon, he could never get over the disgrace, the shame. That's one kind of shame. And sometimes there is shame we oppose, we impose upon ourselves. Sometimes it's in response to what others have said or done to us. What do you think happens to a child who grows up being told time and time again that he or she is worthless? That he or she is just a nuisance? That they're not wanted, they're not loved. What kind of adult will that child turn into someday, do you think? A child who lives with that kind of shame. As I said, there are many different varieties of shame. 
But this is not the way God created his world. So secondly, how do we respond to our shame? When you think about your own experience, your own life, what has been your experience? What's been your response? Some of the characteristics of shame is are that shame wants to stay silent. Shame wants to remain hidden. I want no one to see, and so I will do whatever it takes to cover, to conceal, to run away from anything that will expose me to the ridicule and the shame of others. How do Adam and Eve respond? There is the humiliation of nakedness, which is to say, don't look at me. Don't look at me. What did you do, the Lord said? Well, we were, we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. Who told you you were naked? There's a sense of rejection, isn't there? You once belonged, but now you don't. You're an outcast. And there's contamination. Think of the book of Leviticus and the distinction of clean and unclean. Shame brings a sense of being polluted being covered in filth and mire, having a cloud around us. That's all part of shame, isn't it? A feeling that you have this filth on you and nothing you do is going to get rid of it. How do they respond to shame? How have you perhaps responded to your shame? Sometimes people fight. They retaliate. You may see the bully who wants to inflict pain upon others. Violence, even death. Oftentimes those bullies are people who were bullied themselves. I can tell you from prison ministry, the great tragedy that many of our sex offenders in prison, people who did horrific things to others, particularly to children, were often abused sexually themselves. I think the most... The most painful, one of the most painful experiences I've ever had in prison ministry was at the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, where an inmate who was an excellent student, had a great attitude towards his study of the Christian faith, but told me privately when he finally was able to open up to me, felt comfortable about doing that, he talked to me about his, his sexual offense. And the most troublesome thing he told me was, he says, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I know it's horrible. But I can't help myself. I can't stop. Sometimes people flee. And hiding from shame can take place in many different ways. Sometimes people bury themselves in work, in people-pleasing, in addictions. Again, in prison, I encounter many men who have been addicted to drugs. Why did they do that? It's a form of escape. It's something that takes the edge off the pain of life. You think of other kinds of shame. You think of the shame of survival. You know, there is the shame of survival. You read about that, for example, in the literature on the Holocaust and those who survived the Holocaust. Would it surprise you if I told you that there were many 
many Jews who survived the death camps of the Nazis who committed suicide shortly after the war came to an end because they felt that they not, were not worthy to survive. People who were killed in those camps, they thought many of them were far more worthy to survive than they were. They had no business surviving. And that sense of shame led them to take their own lives. They did nothing wrong. They did nothing wrong. They were, they were abused. They were mistreated. And yet they felt that shame. Shame makes us feel less than human. It turns our world upside down. And we respond to shame in ways that are not helpful. But in many cases only exacerbate the problem. So here this morning, thirdly, how does God respond to our shame? He redeems it. What does he do in particular? Notice from our text, if you read chapter 3, going on from chapter 2, God pursues. God calls out Adam. Where are you, Adam? What did you do, Adam? God provides them with coverings. And God pledges in chapter 3 at the end to deliver them from their guilt and their shame. How? Through a seed. Through a descendant who would be called the Messiah, the anointed of God, the deliverer. He would deliver them both from the guilt of their disobedience, but also from the shame that they experience. And that is where the gospel speaks to our shame, brothers and sisters. Notice how God does this throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus, you have the whole ceremonial process of cleansing. How do unclean people experience cleansing? It's through the blood of the Lamb of God. It is a picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus Christ would do. You have the story in the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea, of the prophet marrying a prostitute, And the Lord saying to this prophet, after his wife has deserted him, go, go find her, search her out. If need be, buy her back, redeem her, in other words. And you think of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does he speak this morning to your shame, my shame, the shame of those who believe in him? He takes upon himself, he absorbs the full measure of our shame through his suffering and his death. He is born under lowly circumstances. He's ridiculed for the lowly circumstances of his life. Oh, we know you're from Joseph and Mary. We know the circumstances of your birth. You think of Jesus' life and ministry. With whom does he associate? With whom does he speak the word of truth? He speaks it to outcasts, people like lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors. Was that not the criticism time and time again, dear friends? Why do you make friends with these kind of people? They said to him or his disciples, Why does he befriend people like this? And the point was, this is the nature of the gospel. 
God does not befriend us because we're worthy of his friendship. His friendship is meant to redeem us, to pull us out of the gutter, to bring us out of darkness and into his light. Think of his suffering and his death. Christ exchanges our shame for glory. He takes upon himself on the cross our shame as well as our guilt. And in return, we by faith, by the grace of God, we receive glory. Our poverty for his riches. We who are slaves to sin become royalty. We who are weak and helpless become strong. We who were foolish become wise. The ugly becomes beautiful. Shame turns to honor. From naked to clothed, from unclean to holy, from outcast to beloved by the Lord. And I want to say to any of you this morning who are struggling with shame issues, to listen carefully to the gospel. Because the gospel is about that wonderful transformation from shame to glory. This is our message to the world. I could read to you many passages that talk about that, that what the gospel brings is that deliverance from being raised up from the pit and being crowned with glory like our Lord Jesus Christ. I simply want to leave with you the one verse from Psalm 3, verse 3. In describing the God who saves us, the God who delivers us, the God who is all-powerful, the God who reigns in majesty, the psalmist says in Psalm 3, verse 3, that he is the one who lifts up our head. I want you to think of that imagery today. God is the one who doesn't simply clear the books, cancel our debt, declare us righteous because of Jesus Christ. He's also the one who stoops down to those who are oppressed with shame and he lifts up our head. And brothers and sisters, that is the message that we proclaim to the world, the world in Western Michigan, the world in America, the world all around us, far and and wide. I want to leave you this morning with, with a challenge. Very simple challenge. Are you prepared to speak to those living in shame and to bring them the message of hope, the message of deliverance, the message of glory? Are you willing to get your hands dirty, so to speak, to get involved with the messiness of ministry? It's always messy because people's lives are a mess. During the pandemic, one of the books that has been most influential to me, and I've had a lot of time to be reading as we've been waiting to get back into prison, but it's a book by Dr. Diane Langberg. Dr. Langberg is a a Christian psychologist or psychiatrist who uh, works especially with trauma victims. And in particular, she focuses upon clergy abuse. 
She has traveled throughout the world. She was invited several times now to travel to Rwanda. Can you imagine counseling people in the aftermath of genocide? It's estimated 100,000 people were killed in 100 days' time in Rwanda back in the 90s. How do you begin counseling people who have seen their whole family exterminated, machete to death? She writes in her book, Suffering in the Heart of God, she talks about an experience she had of traveling to Africa and going to the country of Ghana. And on that tour, they were shown a fortress, which really served two purposes. It was a fortress, but it was also a jail, a holding cell. In the lower layer, lower level, there was a prison where the slaves awaiting transport to the New World would, would stay until they were put on board a ship. And above that was, of all places, a chapel. I'll read to you what she said. Under the form of worship in that chapel in Ghana lay the darkness of slavery, oppression, and tyranny, all things that blight and destroy humans created in the image of God. But I think you know Christianity does not look like being folded up with evil and worshiping on top of dungeons. Following Christ does not look like complicity with a system that butters our bread and fills our coffers, but is built on the backs of those created in the image of God. It does not look like praying and singing and giving money on top of screams, unspeakable suffering, filth, and death. Christianity is not calling others them, somehow unlike us, not human, deserving of their suffering. Our guide pointed up to the church above and said, heaven above, hell below. But I would argue, she says, that heaven was not above, for that is not what heaven does. What does heaven do? Heaven leaves heaven. It's place of comfort, songs, purity, plenty, money to give. Heaven comes down. If the people of that chapel had truly worshipped God, they would have been in the dungeon, in the filth and the darkness and the suffering. They would have entered so that they might bring out. The church goes into the dungeon so that the dungeon becomes the church. God came down so as to lift up. God became like us so that we might become like him. He came to this dung-filled dungeon we call earth and sat with us, touched us, loved us, and called us to him. This is your calling and mine, brothers and sisters, to know the glory of Jesus Christ and to make that real and living to those living in the sorrow and the pain, the suffering of shame. From shame to glory. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will it be your message as well? Let us pray.